KCRW's car donation program is sponsored by local Kia dealers. Introducing the EV6, available with AR windshield head-up display, providing turn-by-turn directions, hazard warnings, and more. More info at Kia.com. I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, women have played a fundamental role in establishing America's religious institutions. So why has history overlooked them? Because women haven't controlled the archives, they haven't controlled the institutions of education, they haven't controlled the libraries and structures of authority through which religious knowledge is passed down, they have been forgotten over and over and over. And later, one writer says her evangelical church dissuaded her from having a full, successful career. When conservative Christians are kind of tempted to, like, throw feminists under the bus or kind of lump all feminists together, we have to remember that we have the feminists to thank for much of the inroads that that women have made. A look at why certain faiths still lag behind in gender equity. All ahead on Life Examined. For generations, gender roles have been deeply embedded in our society and within our social structures. We have specific ideals of what a man or a woman should or should not do. And it's made me wonder, has religion shaped that understanding of gender? To what extent has the church been instrumental in denying women a voice? Historian Anne Browdy says America's society and culture has been profoundly influenced by biblical texts which often portrayed women as subservient and needing to be obedient to men. And what about today? How have religious communities actively embraced gender rights? Do they see the equality of men and women as part of God's design? Anne Browdy is Senior Lecturer on American Religious History and Director of the Women's Studies in Religion Program at Harvard Divinity School. She's also the author of A Religious Feminist, Who Can Find Her? And Browdy, welcome to Life Examine on KCRW. We appreciate the time. My pleasure, Jonathan. Well, you know, just to start with with learning more about you, what's made you so interested in devoting your life to understanding this relationship between women and religion? Well, I really became interested in the study of religion because I was fascinated by the mystery of gender. It seemed to me that Americans hold ideas about what a man should be like or what a woman should be like very much as we hold religious beliefs. We hold these things as matters of belief. We can't really tell you why we think something is a characteristic of a a virtuous man or a virtuous woman, uh, but we know it when we see it. And that's the first thing we ask when we see a baby. We want to know, is it a boy or a girl? We can't Mm. We can't relate to a human being without their gender. So I wanted to understand what that's all about. You know, I grew up in L.A. in the 60s, and I was very influenced by the women's movement. And I I was brought up to believe I could be anything I wanted to be as a woman. And that didn't really turn out to be true. There were some very, very strong ideas about gender that are so deeply embedded in our society and in our social structure that they affect everybody's experience and everything we do. Mm. So I wanted to understand what that was all about. And it seemed to me that studying the nature of belief, studying how people come to believe the things that they believe, how people come to hold values dearly and hold values as inviolable and as crucial to being a good person. Mm. I wanted to understand how that happens so that I could understand the mystery of gender. It it is such a mystery, isn't it? And I love you, you bring up this question of belief, which is so important in this conversation. When did you begin to see a link between understanding gender and and, and the role that plays in religion or how religion helps to shape our understanding of gender? Well, I was in college during the 1970s when some of the first stirrings were occurring about the ordination of women. Hmm. I heard a nun speak. She was a sociologist, and she was talking about all the problems that limited women's leadership in the church and all the problems that those posed for women. But she was a nun, and she had committed her life 
to God mm. and to the Catholic Church and to the service of humanity. And I, I asked her, how can you remain in the church when you see all the sexism and all the injustice to women that goes on in the church? And she said, well, if you really have faith, you believe that there's a larger purpose behind this all and that these are just human limitations on our understanding and that ultimately it will all be worked out, that ultimately women and men who are both created in the image of God will be understood that way in the church. Mm. And um, I was so moved by her faith and by her confidence that the equality of men and women is part of God's design and that that would ultimately come to be clear to everyone. Wow. So was she saying that that it would play out eventually and that this was just kind of her moment in the church? I mean, how did you understand what she was saying? One thing I have to do is say her name because I don't want her to be anonymous. Yeah. She was a sociologist. She's no longer living, uh, named Sister uh, Kristen Wenzel. Well, I was very inspired by what she said because I view religion as something that has been an enormous resource for human beings. So I really see religion as a repository of human wisdom. It's where we have had a place to transmit the experience of being alive from generation to generation and to accumulate knowledge that we can pass down to the future. Religion is a place where we've been able to keep that knowledge and, and make it alive and allow people to access it. At the same time, religion incorporates all kinds of structural discriminations and it incorporates all kinds of hierarchies. Religions all take place in a certain moment in history. They all take place at a certain time and place. There are some theorists of religion who would say there's no such thing as Catholicism. There's no such thing as Judaism or Hinduism. There are only Catholics or Jews or Hindus who live in a certain time and place and understand their faith in that context. Mm -hmm. And you can't really abstract the religions outside of human expression because whether or not there is a God outside of humanity, we can only know any religious truth through human beings. As a historian, I'm always looking at human expressions of religion. The initial question that you were interested in is whether religion is good for women or bad for women. And of course, that question is unanswerable because you would first have to, to say what is good or bad for human beings in general, for women in particular, is what's good for us, what helps us to express ourselves as individuals, or is what's good for us, what helps us to participate in communities and to, uh, to cast our lot beyond our own interests and to be part of something larger than ourselves. Now in the modern era and in American politics, we tend to privilege individual rights over the rights of groups or the welfare of groups. And our laws are designed to protect people as individuals rather than as members of groups. But that's not to say that that's the only thing that constitutes our identity or the only thing that needs protection or nurturing. Religion is something that gives us an opportunity to be part of a community of shared values and to connect our interests with those of others. So I, I know this is a big question, though, but when we think about gender discrimination in, in, let's say, the church, how do you understand that coming to be? I mean, what what are the roots of it when you think about this historically? Well, many people would say that when you're talking about religion and sexism, you're really looking at the belly of the beast. 
because religious ideas, particularly Protestantism, but also Christianity more generally, are so deeply enmeshed in American culture, in American law, in American institutions, um, that the Bible is never far from the values that are expressed through an American institution. Our country has been deeply affected by biblical texts that prohibit women speaking in public, that view women as subservient to men, that view women as needing to be obedient to men. All of those texts have had a profound influence in American society. Can you talk a little bit about, about some of these maybe discriminatory texts in the Bible um, or, or interpretations of it that create these divisions between men and women? Sure. Um, you know, the Bible is really the textbook of American history. It's really hard to understand anything in the American past without looking at the centrality of the Bible to the formation of American culture. And we have texts in the Bible that say that women should be silent in church, and if they want to learn, they should stay at home and ask their husbands. Those texts were very influential in the 19th century, and still today in some places, in creating a view that women should not speak in public. It's been very interesting during the last last 20 or 30 years ago to look at a figure like Sarah Palin, for example, who was a candidate for vice president, who believed in that women should be subservient to their husbands in the home, but nevertheless believed that she could be vice president of the United States. So it's been very interesting to see how Christians who hold the Bible to be divinely inspired have navigated the many different things that the Bible says. And one of the the figures that Sarah Palin loved that many Christian women have looked to is Queen Esther as a model of someone who was who took public leadership, saved the Jewish people, and did so by strategically deploying her femininity. Hmm that she never uh, went outside of what a proper woman should do, but she nevertheless was able to change history and to, in a sense, have power over her husband, the king, by being virtuous and and strategic about the deployment of her femininity. Mm. So many women have found in the Bible authorization for doing things that the society told them they could not do, and often that they themselves doubted whether a woman could do. In the 21st century, it's difficult to remember how strong gender norms of the past have been and continue to be in many places. We tend to think today we're beyond all that, but that's not at all the case. And would you say that this this attitude that you're talking about is mirrored in other religions right now, Judaism, Islam? Uh, do we see this elsewhere? Um, well, one of the things that's really important to remember is that all religions have internal diversity. Every religion is practiced in different times and places in different ways, and there are very frequently members of the same congregation who differ with each other about the interpretation of religious texts or religious laws. And, you know, I'm Jewish, and we always say, two Jews, three opinions. Mm -hmm. You have to have at least two synagogues in your town because you have to have the one that you go to and the one that you won't set foot in. And that's a funny way to express what I think is a very important truth about religion, that there's no religion that has one orthodoxy that has governed in all times and places and that is compelling to all of its adherents. Mm. So that's one reason that I believe, and the program I direct at Harvard Divinity School in Women's Studies and Religion, really takes this idea to heart 
that is very important for there to be qualified women scholars who are literate in the sacred languages of their scriptures and can be voices at the table in the interpretation of those scriptures, in the interpretation of the religious law of their faith, whatever it is, because all of these are interpreted by human beings. Mm. And if they are only interpreted by men, I don't have to tell you what the result of that is going to be. We've seen that for thousands of years. Now we're starting to see women, certainly in Islam, in Orthodox Judaism, in many religions, we're starting to see women educate themselves for authoritative roles of being able to interpret scripture and religious law. Well, if we if we kind of go back to some of of the earlier American history here, I wonder if you could talk about some women who stand out for you and the role they played in, in the church. Maybe some names that that have been more forgotten in recent years, but but highlight something important about the history. Well, there's so many women who've been forgotten. Mm. <laughs> that's um, that's a long list, and that's part of the problem that we have as historians, that because women haven't controlled the archives, they haven't controlled the uh, institutions of education, they haven't controlled the libraries and the structures of of authority through which religious knowledge is passed down, they have been forgotten over and over and over. But there have been women throughout history who have stood out as religious scholars who somehow found a way to study and to, uh, to become expert mm. on the doctrines of their faith. One of the figures who is getting more and more attention today, but who was relatively unknown for 100 years after her death, was Jerina Lee, the African-American woman evangelist, who was part of the same church as Richard Allen, the founder of the AME Church in Philadelphia in the early 19th century. And when Jerina Lee went to Richard Allen and said, I have a calling to preach, he said, the Methodist discipline knows nothing about women preaching. And so he refused her ordination, but nevertheless, she traveled. And this is during the period of slavery. She traveled widely, she preached all over, and it was not only remarkable that a woman stood up to preach at a time when many people believed it was immoral and unchristian for a woman to speak in public, um, but for a black woman to do so, you can only imagine the stir that this caused. And she preached to everyone, black, white, male, female. At that time, mixed congregations of men and women were quite controversial. Men and women were seated separately in church. Um, the, the idea that men and women should pray and uh, worship together was termed a promiscuous assembly. And that is because it was not only considered unbiblical for women to speak in public, it was considered unbiblical for men to hear them. A woman's voice was um, a temptation. And in, in the 19th century, when evangelicalism is really taking America by storm, there is an idea that a public woman is a prostitute. That is, that women should be um, confined to a domestic sphere where they can be untainted by the immorality of the marketplace and that men go out and get dirty in the marketplace and then they come back to the moral haven of the home where women are preserving a domestic sphere where men can and children can kind of recover from the sins of capitalism and experience a Christian life. So you get the idea of motherhood as um, a really key aspect of the transmission of Christianity. And you can see 
already when domesticity and the private home are being elevated as a Christian realm, that we must be talking about white women because that is not a standard of Christianity that is going to be inclusive of African-American women. So women like Jarena Lee broke so many bounds. Um, Jarena Lee continued preaching, but she continued to be denied ordination. And a remarkable thing happened a few years ago in the AME church. She was posthumously ordained. So she has continued to be a figure and has been revived by women in the church today as someone who speaks to them, who is a model. Um, But she's not the old model of what a Christian woman should be. She's someone who broke the rules, but she broke them in order to be a better Christian. And we have so many examples of this in every religion. Women who are inspired by their faith to break the boundaries of expectation that's that limit women's roles. And I wonder if you could talk more about African-American women within the church and and just the relationship there. Um, Is there more you can add to that? Sure. Well, you know, there's an old saying in the black church that women are the backbone of the church. And that is such a revealing statement because what it suggests is that women hold the church up. They're the ones who support the church financially. They make the food. They clean the sanctuary. They do everything that is needful to keep the church going. They bring their children into the church to create a next generation that will continue the life of the church after their lives. Um, And yet their place is in the back, in the back of the man who is standing in the pulpit. This has been a huge issue for African-American women, that there has been a real need to support male leadership in a racist environment where black men are um, denied leadership, denied masculinity, um, are subject to all kinds of violence. So there is this need to build the men up as figures of authority in the church. And yet there have also been women who have been inspired by their faith to assume their own authority and their own leadership. Would it be fair to say that women have been the backbone of many other religious traditions as well? Absolutely. Nuns, Roman Catholic women religion, through most of American history, have out numbered priests and, uh, and brothers by factors of several multiples. The whole Roman Catholic subculture that really was a huge factor in American life from about 1860 to 1960 that uh, comprised Catholic schools, Catholic hospitals, uh, Catholic institutions of every kind of, for every kind of social service, Those were all staffed by unpaid women who had committed their lives to service to the church. Hmm. Without them, none of that Catholic infrastructure would have existed. And you can say that about many institutions. For for Jews, the, the sociologist Marshall Sklar used to say that it would have been institutional suicide for American Jews when they came from Europe, if they had not adopted the American practice of women attending public worship and being the uh, the organi- organizational force that sustains it, which was not the practice in European Jewry. It's really interesting. So, I mean, what you're saying is that even though the women theologically maybe had no power, they actually held perhaps more power than we think, just in terms of their numbers, their support, and being this backbone. Women have been the majority of virtually every large religious group in the United States throughout American history. Without the mass of women in the pews to listen to and support the one man in the pulpit, 
no religious institution in America would exist. And why do you think that there is a certain religiosity, perhaps, within women versus men? I mean, if, if that's even a statement that, that we can make sense of. That's a great question. And we can make sense of that question. Social surveys show us that women throughout the world are more religious than men on every metric. They pray more frequently. They attend public worship more frequently. They, uh, they consider religion to be a more important part of their daily lives and their decision-making. That's not every woman, and it's not every man. But numerically, it's, women are more religious. Now, what does that mean? Um, there have been several attempts to explain this, most of which I find very unsatisfactory. I'm not sure we have a better explanation for women's religiosity than the one that was given by Cotton Mather, the famous Puritan divine in early New England, who said that women are more religious than men because they face death in childbirth. And so they have to, every time they have a baby, they have to prepare themselves not to survive that experience. They have to be prepared to meet their maker every time they become pregnant and deliver. There was a higher, much higher infant mortality in that time than today, so we can't rely on that explanation anymore. Um, but women do have a profound experience of uh, not controlling their own body in childbirth, they have, in their roles as mothers, they have a profound experience of being connected to other people in a way that requires them to put their own needs aside. Now, that's not to say that men don't play parental roles and have those experiences, and that men aren't religious. They are. But proportionately, we see women more involved in the parental role and we see women more involved in religion. Can you talk about the rise of, of feminist theology and, and some of the changes we're starting to see in the religious landscape? There's a real misconception that feminism and religion are inherently opposed to each other, that feminism is a completely secular movement, and that religions in general oppose women's rights. Speaking as a historian, that is empirically inaccurate. There have been women's movements in virtually every religion that have viewed their religious faith as a reason to advance women's rights and a reason to advance women's humanity. There have been reform movements in virtually every religion that have taken this as their goal. Women have studied the Bible, they have retranslated the Bible, they have found, and not just the Bible, other scriptures as well, the Quran, Indian scriptures, all kinds of scriptures. Some religious feminists have viewed the sexism of their religious institutions as the result of inaccurate translations or interpretations of sacred scripture. Others have viewed the scripture as something that has to be looked at more holistically. So Christians, for example, Christian feminists, have taken a liberal view that it was more important to look at the overall message of the scripture rather than to look at it word for word. And, that, and many Christian feminists have found that when there is a conflict between women's humanity and a scriptural text, they view the humanity of women as being created in the image of God as overriding specific texts that are found to restrict women's role. Now, one of the interesting things that has happened is that feminism has become a huge source of creativity in religion. Feminists have developed new rituals, um, new symbolisms, new religious art, and new religious clothing. 
um, all kinds of things that have added a vibrancy to contemporary religion. When you look at kind of the, the large sweep of religious history and as we move into the future here, do you think things are trending towards gender equity? What are your thoughts? So it's really hard to say where things are going. What we do know is that women can continue to be religious and want to take leadership in their communities and that there aren't always men who are available for that job. So many religious institutions have a choice of whether to embrace women's leadership or whether to have no leaders at all. Well, Professor Ann Browdy at Harvard, we really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you for addressing this topic. Professor Ann Browdy is Senior Lecturer on American Religious History and Director of the Women's Studies and Religion Program at Harvard Divinity School. She's also the author of A Religious Feminist, Who Can Find Her? Still to come, our next guest says that it's time there was a more expansive and empowered vision for women in the church. Join us after this short break. This is Life Examined on KCRW. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Harvard professor Ann Browdy explain the important role women played in sustaining and establishing the church and how Bible scriptures define gender and cultural roles in America. So how is this playing out now? Do religious communities look favorably on a woman with professional ambition? Or are women still told their most important job is to be a wife and a mother? In her latest book called A Woman's Place, A Christian Vision for Your Calling in the Office, the Home, and the World, author Caitlin Beatty says it's time that conservative Christians truly celebrate the role of women in society and encourage genuine gender equality. Caitlin Beatty, welcome to Life Examined. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Well, uh, you know, one of the things that recently jumped out to me was um, a New York Times piece you wrote recently after the confirmation of Supreme Court Judge Barrett. And um, I want to start with just one line in there that really caught my attention. You said, why doesn't the traditional Christianity to which she adheres encourage more women to be more like her? I wonder if you could use that as a way for us to kind of get into some of the ideas you had about the role of a woman in the church and, and the kind of the tension between um, being being a good congregant, but also wanting to perhaps have a, a rich professional life as well. Yes. Well, I wish that the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett were happening while I was writing my book because it would have provided a lot of fodder for uh, the central point and tension, you mentioned the tension, I think that a lot of Christian women experience between what they are taught in church communities about their role as women and what they actually aspire to be and do in all facets of life. So I think one of the reasons that there aren't more women like Amy Coney Barrett in terms of um, level of professional accomplishment is simply that many Christian women hear a message that their highest role or calling as women is to be wives and mothers and that alone, or that nothing should come into conflict with those roles. And in research for my book, I I found that that is a very pervasive idea that a lot of women of faith are contending with. And yet they also sense this call or this ambition to excel in the workplace, um, to, to really pursue professional ambitions. And it's unfortunate that they are not always 
supported to do so in their communities of faith. When did you first start to notice this tension? Because uh, as I've mentioned, you, you've written quite a bit about it, but, but at what point in your life did this become apparent? So I currently live in uh, New York, but I used to live in the Chicago suburbs and work there at a magazine and it, it uh, the Wheaton area. And it's a very heavily Christian subculture. So I really found in my own life that tension between what I wanted to do as a professional and what I was hearing in the Christian subculture around me, mm. I started to experience that in my own life as I started to really gain some traction in my professional life. I often found that one work, professional work just wasn't something that was being talked about at church. Um, it was almost like the 40 hours that you, that many of us spend in, in places of work every week was just not a point of consideration or importance mm. um, in those church communities, but also in in many church communities, not only in where I used to live, but I think across the country in evangelical subcultures, there is a suspicion of women who have too many professional ambitions um, and just a, a reclamation of women as nurturers and, and caretakers and wives and mothers. And of course, nothing that I say or write wants to denigrate the, the work of, of caretaking, of parenting, of nurturing. But um, I think there's really something that the world loses when women are, are told they can only be one thing, mm. um, that they can't be many different things. And being a single person, um, you know, I, I didn't really find a lot of space in the spiritual communities that I was a part of to bring my full self, including my professional self, which is a really big part of, of who I am. And I had to imagine in writing my book that there were a lot of other women of faith who, who felt that uh, lack, that they also couldn't bring their full selves into their communities of faith. And I wanted to try to remedy that and to to cast a more expansive vision for women in the church. Did you hear uh, kind of words explicitly from pastors, from other members of the church saying, please, you know, uh, please reconsider maybe the, the path that you're taking? Or did it come in, in other messages? I, I just wonder what that experience was like for you. Well, I feel really thankful that my parents and teachers and mentors have pretty much unanimously encouraged me to do and be whatever I wanted. You know, I wasn't growing up necessarily in a household that taught me that I shouldn't have too many professional ambitions. It really came later. I'll never forget a conversation I had at a at a professional event with a woman probably 20 years older than me. And she, we were talking about our respective, you know, professional lives. And she offered this warning to me. She mm. said, you know, I know that, like, right now, you're really enjoying your professional successes, especially at your age, but you really need to consider that the longer you invest in your professional life, um, you know, marriage and family will become increasingly unavailable to you. Wow. Um, that if you choose this path and you're, then you're uh, foregoing this other possible path. And I think back on that as her projecting her own life onto mine, because <laughs> she felt that in her own life. And at the time, I just kind of rolled my eyes. But the longer I think about it, I think that was... Um, sad for her that she received messages in her life that told her that to be a professionally ambitious woman meant that you would never really be able to get married and have kids. And obviously we know that that isn't true. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I, I think of a, a prominent church in the Chicago suburbs um, that did, you know, a, a preaching series on, uh, gender and um, men's roles and women's roles and sexuality. And you know, it was stated very explicitly from the pulpit um, during the week where they talked about femininity that 
you know, college age women should be really careful not to choose, um, you know, a professional path that would curtail their ability to be good moms in the future. And I just thought, does that mean that like women should, what does that even mean? Like, why are these women at college even Mm -hmm. (laughs) if, if they're being told that they need to kind of contain their own professional ambitions, because it could mean that they would be, you know, uncommitted mothers. Again, I just, I think that that is such a false dichotomy um, to say you can either be professionally engaged or um, engaged in the home and engaged in family life. And it's, it's obvious going back to the example of Amy Coney Barrett and many other women besides that that is a false dichotomy and you can be an engaged parent as well as an engaged um, professional. And um, we, we needn't choose. And it's often these external forces that tell women they have to choose between the two. Why do you think some, some components of the evangelical church still, still believes so deeply in these traditional roles of, of husband and wife, man and woman? What, what do they point to that, that still holds up for them? I think a lot of evangelicals find references in scripture, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, that would delineate really strong roles between men and women, between mm-hmm. husbands and wives. Of course, so much of of reading the Bible and understanding the Bible is is interpretation. Yeah, of, course, of course. And you can you can look at the same passage of scripture. Uh, ten people can look at the same passage of scripture and come to ten different readings of what that scripture means. But certainly at least in the, the Catholic tradition, I know that's not you you were asking about the evangelical world, but there right. is some some overlap there. And certainly you know, traditional Catholics would find a lot of teaching, a lot of robust teaching um, about uh, gender differences and theology of the body and manhood and womanhood and how they complement one another in marriage. And um, I think for a lot of conservative Christians today, whether they're evangelicals or Catholics, there's a sense that they they sense or they perceive that there's a kind of blurring of gender roles in broader Western culture, that there's right. a trend toward that. And there's a sense that there something really valuable to them would be lost if they don't um, teach really distinct roles for men and women and keep the gender differences really clear. Mm. And that, you know, that, that would be um, a significant reason why, conservatives, including conservative Christians um, in the 60s and 70s and 80s really railed against second wave feminism because it was perceived that, you know, if if more women are encouraged to advocate for themselves in the workplace, then they will neglect or forsake or diminish the role of, of motherhood. And that's where we have you know, such a such a strong component of the culture wars of the last fifty years have been about women's entree into into the workforce. Mm-hmm. Do you still think of yourself as an evangelical? <laughs> I probably don't have enough time in this radio interview to unpack all of that. So, <laughs> I I certainly consider myself a Christian. I consider myself to be a Christian who really tries to mean it (laughs) in my daily life. You know, the evangelical word, I I certainly am indebted to evangelicalism as a movement for so much of my faith formation. That's certainly where I came to faith um, and where I learned what it would look like to love God and neighbor. I think just with certain cultural and political events of the last several years, I understand more deeply how much baggage the word evangelical carries. I will say I, I have belonged to, by choice, I have belonged to churches in my adulthood that affirm women in leadership you know, including in positions of spiritual leadership, that's a really important value of mine. Um, And so 
even while kind of a broader evangelical community might still contest mm. women's roles, both inside and outside the church. I think there are significant pockets of the church that have no problem affirming women's, both their professional ambitions, as well as their direct leadership within church communities. So I find refuge in, in that. But I also, I also find solace in the words of scripture, mm. because there is this quite radical liberatory vision for women to be found there when you consider the ways that Jesus interacted with women in his day and age mm -hmm. um, that he seemed to, from, from the accounts of the new Testament, he engaged women in ways that would have been quite radical and quite um, humanizing for, for, his time and would have invited women into full participation as disciples at a time when men and women were not supposed to interact in that way. Um, and so that gives me hope, even if parts of the church today have kind of abandoned or forgotten that liberatory vision that God has not. And so as we return to where we started, how did someone like Judge Amy Coney Barrett pull pull this off in a way? How, how does a woman have it all, get to be part of what some might think of as a more traditional or uh, conservative Christianity, yet be this powerhouse of a judge and have all those children? How, how does that work in the modern day world? <laughs> well, she would be, I'm sure, the first to point to the fact that her husband, uh, her life partner is 100% behind her. She, both of them probably draw a lot of support from their uh, broader community that it's not just left to the two of them, but there are many people involved in uh, raising their children and managing a household. And in that way, of course, she is in a position of privilege, you know, um, not only to attain the education that she has, but also to have that kind of support network. Um, that's something that very few women realistically have access to. And I think that's all the reason more why um, we need to advocate for workplaces and communities that affirm women's desire and gifting to be fully engaged as uh, professionals and also fully engaged as parents and to be creating um, more flexible workplaces or policies that allow for women to flourish in both areas of life at once. Yeah. Do you, do you recognize the work done um, by women in the workplace, by liberals and feminists like, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which is such, you know, an interesting comparison in this moment with Judge Barrett. Mm, absolutely. I, you know, when I wrote the New York Times piece, it wasn't so much because Amy Coney Barrett is a personal heroine. <laughs> I mean, sure. at the end of the day, if I had to choose in a lot of ways, you know, I would kind of more naturally resonate with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and, um, much of what that much of what she uh, championed, but I could also see my own faith formation and faith community in the person of Amy Coney Barrett, and and that is why you know I wrote that piece about her. But absolutely, I mean, we wouldn't, I would not have been able to, for example, attain higher education or advocate for equal pay or. Um, advocate for more women in leadership at various workplaces that I've been a part of, including my own leadership, were it not for um, liberal feminists of the last hundred years, mm. um, making, making, pushing for uh, gender equity at all levels of society. And so I think when conservative Christians are kind of tempted to like, um, throw feminists under the bus or kind of lump all feminists together, we have to remember that we have the feminists to thank mm -hmm. for much of the inroads that, that women have made and um, that we're part of their legacy. We're part of um, what they championed and we now get to enjoy 
um, the fruits of their labors. And we would be remiss not to remember the sacrifices um, and the, the cost of what they they won for women today, even though we, we still have a long ways to go as yeah. well. And finally, I wonder how you think things may shift. You're probably having conversations with a lot of young folks in the church. I mean, we interviewed an interesting pastor who spent this whole election cycle. He's an evangelical pastor fighting for climate change. And so I just wonder if you're seeing a new movement of young Christians rise up and demand something different than perhaps what they have been given so far or what their parents were given. I definitely sense a yearning among Christians my age to disassociate their faith from um, a certain kind of clinging to cultural power and, Mm. and cultural dominance that unfortunately has been tied up with our faith um, for the last, I mean, for a long time, but, but certainly acutely um, in the last 20 or 30 years with the rise of the religious right and, more recently, the the white evangelical support of of Donald Trump. And I think to get to that detangling, um, a lot of us will have to step away from the institutions of faith that formed us before reengaging and and perhaps creating our own institutions, um, creating Mm -hmm. faith communities that um, are living out Jesus's call to care for the least among us, to care for the poor and marginalized, to be willing to lay down power rather than uh, seek power or um, hold on to power. Um, I, I know it's it's kind of a cliche, but what would it look like to have Christian communities that are centrally fixated on loving and serving their neighbors? instead of combating their neighbors, you know, seeing their neighbors as image bearers, um, people worthy of, of love and dignity, rather than people that are, are held at an arm's length because of their politics or because of their identity or because of their, because of their own religion, right? So I, I think, um, you know, we're still in this winnowing process or still in a refining process. And I know the last four years especially have been difficult for many younger Christians, not even to mention Christians of color um, who have white, watched so many of their, their white um, cohorts in the faith support a man who, you know, failed to condemn white supremacists. I, I like, if it's painful for me, I can't even imagine how painful the last four years have been for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think something good will come out of this time of refinement and winnowing. Um, I think that uh, a stronger faith could come out of this this time of of loss. Well, Caitlin Beatty, um, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week. KCRW's car donation program is sponsored by local Kia dealers. Introducing the all-new EV6 with a vehicle-to-load function that turns the EV6 into a mobile power source. More info at Kia.com.